A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents A Master's Dissertation by Zach Twomley Chapter 3 Honor in the Anti-Interventionist Camp Britain's Liberal government was strikingly divided when British policy in the event of a continental war was debated. This was not only due to the fact that the prospect of war had seemed by the summer of 1914 to be increasingly unlikely. As this chapter will demonstrate, anti-interventionists disagreed fundamentally with the notion that Britain was honourably obligated to support France, or that supporting Russia was anything other than an immoral course. Honour was to be defended, these actors believed, by the enacting of policy at home, not by intervention abroad. On the 1st of August 1914, Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey pointed out to Paul Cambon, the French ambassador to Britain, that, quote, We had no obligations. We had purposely kept clear of alliances. I had assured Parliament again and again that our hands were free. End quote. The media sensed this consensus. The Manchester Evening News noted that, quote, There are no unpublished agreements which will restrict or hamper the freedom of the government or of Parliament to decide whether or not Britain should participate in the war. End quote. While conceding that though Britain has friendships with Russia and France, these friendships were not alliances, quote, in the strict sense of the term, and they certainly did not compel Britain, quote, to give them aid of our army and navy, end quote. As late as the 3rd of August, the Manchester Evening News alluded to the fact that, quote, we have been assured both by the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister that we are under no obligation, honourable or otherwise, to take the field either in defence or aid of any continental power. The section of the press that is trying to make out a case in this direction will have first of all to persuade the people of this country that the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister have been deliberately lying. End quote. 
Indeed, political contemporaries aware of recent history would have noted that Prime Minister Asquith, as recently as March 1913, had, quote, silenced a Tory critic by asserting categorically that Britain had no military obligations towards France, official or otherwise, end quote. Although some remain sceptical, quote, Asquith's repetition of the same denial only a fortnight later should have quelled all doubts. End quote. In reality, Grey and others had committed Britain to war despite their guarantees, and the next chapter will examine the denunciations of government policy by those statesmen in the House of Commons who felt as though they had been duped. In retrospect, the anti-war camps trust of Sir Edward Grey to prevent war appears somewhat misplaced considering his weighted entente sympathies. Yet as late as the 4th of August, the Daily Record claimed that, quote, if there is a chance yet of Britain, consistent with her honour and her interests, of keeping out of the war, Sir Edward Grey may be trusted to take full advantage of it, end quote. Additionally, the Scotsman would argue that Britain had striven, quote, first to preserve the peace of empire and then to prevent the empire from being drawn, without sacrifice of British honour and interests, into the vortex of the great struggle of the continental powers. End quote. Indeed, although by the 1st of August, Gray's colleagues collectively had, quote, still refused to authorise any statement about British intentions should war come, end quote, by the next day, the government was committed to a conditional entry into the war. Amidst the smokescreen of unclear information in late July and early August, anti-interventionist newspapers weighed in on the debate, and in the process insisted that British honour necessitated neutrality. On the 30th of July, the Daily Gazette for Middlesbrough noted that, quote, Our duty as a nation is not to take our course from this or that power, but to adapt the action which is most consistent with the welfare of our people and in the highest interests of humanity. In the previous chapter, we saw appeals to the moral fibre of a readership wherein the righteousness of war was emphasised. Here we see a moral appeal for peace. The Manchester Guardian claimed on the 31st of July that, Honour is not involved abroad, it is irretrievably involved at home. End quote. The Daily News and Leader commented that same day that, quote, Honour, principle, interest, all alike dictate one course. To maintain absolute neutrality shall this lamentable dispute, in which we have neither lot nor part, bring war to the great continental powers. End quote. As if getting wind of the honour-based debates used by the pro-war camp, the Manchester Guardian on the 1st of August published the following striking reply. Quote, Is it honour that we fight for? No! For honour's sake, we must keep out of the war. Being free as regards Europe, we must decide in favour of neutrality, for if we decide differently, then we violate dozens of promises made to our own people. The promise to seek peace, to protect the poor, to husband the resources of this country, these are promises in honour binding. And if they are broken, then not only are our interests sacrificed, but our honour is tarnished. End quote. It is significant to see such a contradictory definition of honour, 
to that of the previous chapter. Honour, as non-interventionists understood it, was bound up in the British Liberal government's commitments to its domestic issues. Promises to increase the lot of the poor and improve the quality of life for all in the country. That same government could not pay due consideration to such honourable duties, non-interventionists claimed, if their attentions were distracted by war. This war, a war in which they discern no direct interest or benefits, would be a waste of resources, manpower and time, and would detract from resources meant for social improvement, and that was why it was a dishonourable course to take. The Westminster Gazette echoed this opinion. It noted on the 1st of August that Asquith's previous assurances of a British free hand swept away, quote, the various theories and hypotheses which assumes us to be bound by engagements, which it would be dishonourable to break. End quote. Ringing condemnations of Entente's solidarity continued, with the Manchester Guardian on the 1st of August also stating that, quote, We advise Englishmen that they have no sympathy to spare for Europe, let them keep for themselves, and think first of all of England, English honour and English interests. End quote. Furthering this view, on the 3rd of August, the Daily Herald claimed that, quote, The Times and The Observer are seemingly determined that we shall have war at all costs. Honour demands nothing of the kind. The Entente with France does not bind us to fight. The real demand of honour is attention to grave domestic issues. End quote. Therefore, the anti-interventionists' honour-based arguments centred on the fact that the Anglo-French Entente was non-binding, and that the British government had a greater moral responsibility to its own people than to involvement in foreign wars. In addition to these two points, the issue of Russia also featured in the debates of the anti-interventionists, with the belief espoused that, should Britain support Russia, her very honour would be in jeopardy. The public and government perception of the war before the invasion of Belgium was coloured by the behaviour of Russia. Despite the agreements Britain possessed with Russia, these did not compel her, by law, to range herself on Russia's side, the pleas of Britain's ambassador to St. Petersburg notwithstanding. The editor of the Daily Herald, George Lansbury, speaking at an anti-war demonstration on the 2nd of August, announced that it would be to the indelible dishonour of Britain to back the autocracy of Russia. Just as the interventionists argued for the moral bankruptcy and damage to Britain's reputation if she failed to defend the French coasts from attack, so the anti-interventionists here insisted that supporting the tyrannical regime of Russia would damage Britain's presentation of itself to the world. How could Britain claim to be a honourable, reputable, Christian country if she willingly supported the same regime that had bloodily suppressed strikes and continued to ruthlessly stifle its citizens' freedoms. This was one of the positions of the anti-interventionist camp. The idea that the very prestige of the British Empire would be in jeopardy should she side with one of Europe's most despotic regimes. In support of this view, the Daily Herald was able to claim on the 1st of August that it was, quote, an outrage on the traditions of our country that men should contemplate the bare possibility of our going to war on behalf of the black hundreds of Russia. End quote. 
The clarification that Britain was under no obligations was an important exercise. If Britain was not obliged in the first place to aid her Entente partners, then there was no basis to the claims that her honour was at stake should either of these partners come under threat. It is important to note that the decisions made within the Cabinet meeting of the 2nd of August 1914 did not pass without casualties. The idea that Britain was now fully pledged to defend the French coasts pushed Sir John Burns, President of the Board of Trade, to resign. In a note to his friends, Burns claimed that Honour, duty, humanity all unite in my protest against this wanton war. Veteran statesman and Lord President of the Council John Morley followed him, retiring from politics in the process, citing above all his opposition to supporting Russia in the coming war which he now believed inevitable. Indeed, the disappointment and sense of betrayal at the news of Grey's policy certainly played a large part in influencing Charles Trevelyan, Liberal MP and the Parliamentary Secretary to the Board of Education, to resign from his position as a junior member of government. The crime, at least from Trevelyan's perspective, was all Grey's. He, Grey, gave us not one reason why we should support France, but he showed us he had been leading her to expect our support and appealed to us as bound in honour. The Tories shouted with delight. And Grey had received warnings from other sources before that meeting. Liberal MP Arthur Ponsonby had noted in a letter to Grey on the 30th of July that Britain, quote, on no account should be drawn into a war in which neither treaty obligations, British interests, British honour, or even sentiments of friendship were involved. End quote. The passionate, anti-interventionist sentiments of British media and individuals led to anti-war demonstrations, as well as the establishment of numerous neutrality societies in the final days of peace. Whereas the interventionists saw honourable obligations that bound them to France, the anti-interventionists saw only anticipations, falsely built up over the previous years in France, while at the same time they'd been assured Britain was in no way bound to any course of action. Even in the days after Gray's speech on the 3rd of August, and the growing expectation because of it that British intervention would soon follow, the media did not blindly follow Gray's lead. What is more, some continue to argue that, on the basis of moral, honour-based principles, Britain should not have intervened in the first place. The Daily Herald claimed that, quote, The part played by France has not been clearly honourable, end quote which was made of the fact that, quote, capitalist journalism only hoodwinks the working man when it talks of the call to honour, and it was asserted that, quote, we have more insistent demands, those of labour, and honour bids us to respond to them alone, end quote. Again, we see the position upheld, that honour lay not in intervention for France, but in the fulfilment of the government's commitments to improve the lives of those in need at home. Not to be outdone, as late as the 5th of August, a striking rebuff to the call to honour was made by an editorial at the Manchester Evening News. Within this piece, the author, F. H. Rose, noted that the recent war, quote, all appears to have its foundation in that curiously dubious quantity which, for some unknown reason, is termed national honour. 
but conceptions of national honour, prestige and good name are now, as ever, qualified by the ability of those who assert them to maintain them by force. At the end, somebody's honour will be vindicated, somebody else's will be as doubtful as it is now. It looks as if Britain is to join this frantic stampede to hell. So much the worse for Britain that her honour is in the hands of such questionably faithful custodians. End quote. Finally, Rose concluded with a critique on the way in which Britain's honour was conceptualised. Quote, None of the people have anything to gain, and most are beginning to understand that national honour is as safe in amity as in conflict. The vindication of honour will not compensate the poor, nor will its loss dehumanise the nation. End quote. Does the concept of honour survive such ringing statements made by Rose? Taken as a whole, Rose's dissatisfaction and distaste is not held for the concept of honour, but for the way that the government both invoked the device and represented it. One could thus assert that Rose's editorial is a good example of the importance and significance of honour, since only someone that believed as passionately as Rose did in the value of honour would have written such a critical commentary on that device's improper treatment. The concept of honour was soon to come under yet more scrutiny and debate. As the next chapter will show, the issue of Belgium would dramatically colour the debates on Britain's honourable conduct. Yet, it is worth noting here how those in favour of neutrality continued up until almost the last moment to maintain that Britain could have both its neutrality and its honour intact, but that to sacrifice both would be a serious crime. To the anti-interventionists, just as much as those that favoured war, honour was a valued concept, something which Britain's machinery, culture and population had worked hard to cultivate. Although the difference was a matter of perspective, from this chapter it should be clear that both camps viewed honour as a significant entity. It had the power to mobilise opinion, catch the eye of the readership, and inspire passionate advocates on both sides to preach their message of either peace or war in the name of honour. In the evening of the 2nd of August 1914, the German Empire presented its ultimatum to Belgium. The latter's reply and position would, over the following days, intensify what had already been a dramatic, emotional and striking debate. The next chapter will assess this next phase of Honours History. This dissertation miniseries has been divided into six parts for easier listening. You have reached the end of one part, but not the end of the entire miniseries, so please check your downloads for the remaining parts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. 
The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.